and welcome to What. It is the part comedy roundtable, part documentary uh, edutainment palooza. Sure. I really thought you said pot comedy, and I was like, "Did we have a content pivot that I was not aware Ooh. of?" Oh, did you? Did, didn't I? Didn't I tell you? <laughs> oh, yeah, we're a I, weed podcast now. <laughs> oh, great, cool, legalize yeah. it. <laughs> legalize it. No, it's the same edutainment show where it's just some, pot. It's, it's just pot. <laughs> it's part of it. Just part of it. Where, do you ever? Uh, do you ever hear us talk? And do you ever miss ours? All the time. I'm just like, hey, excuse me. <laughs> When are the bars gonna open, you know? <laughs> this is the show where some adults give each other a book report of their choosing about anything they want with the aim to wow the other, basically. My name's Ellie Main, and joining me, as always, is the delicious Chelsea Hoffish. She a snack. Oh my God, the snack that snaps back. <laughs> it's true, snack that snaps talks that. back. Listen to me. <laughs> <laughs> Listen to me. <laughs> Wait, I have a bone. I have oh, a bone no. to pick with you. <laughs> I always knew it. Ever since, ever since uh, that delightful like four and a half months that we shared a full size bed, I always knew she might have a bone. Uh, I let you into my sheets, and this is how you repay me. <laughs> Josie and I are in the process of moving out of our apartment into uh, boy houses, uh, our respective boy houses. They've been on the podcast before, Connor and Miles. And I went to move some stuff the other day at Chelsea, and you say to me, "I'm ninety nine percent moved out." <laughs> Which I think was quite a gross exaggeration of the process. Name seven things that are mine that are still in that. Your entire bed. Okay, well that's one thing though. All your picture frames, a lot of your tchotchkes. That's not true. I, yes, I have true. very few tchotchkes still in the apartment. You have a whole nativity scene. <laughs> <laughs> that's okay, still but- out, by the way. <laughs> Some of us like to celebrate God all year long instead oh. of maybe just once a year. Yeah, like, you got some- me. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I you know what? I feel slightly dicked on. Yeah, do you? Yeah. <laughs> oh, is that bone coming out? Who's got the bone now? How are you, Charles? <sighs> you yeah. know. Oh. Yeah. A lament like a whole- lamentative. It's fine. I mean, you know, I think we're all having difficult times. Nobody is having as difficult time. As the bar owners here in Austin who are currently, and this is true, right as we record this, protesting downtown at the Capitol with signs that say bar lives matter. Oh, no. Oh, yeah. Because they're mad that Greg Abbott reclosed the bars. And I was like, ooh, he never should have opened them. No, (laughs) off of the rampaging disease. Yeah, and I was like, because if there is one place in my life where all of my sense of, like, propriety and like proper like person to person communicable hygiene goes out the window it's like <laughs> sidebar when i'm fucking shit can right you know what i mean i do like, i do know what you mean like any other day you would never do any of that shit but like at sidebar you're like oh somebody else only drank half of their shot and well i've oh. been talking to them for three minutes they seem fine I'm they seem cool it. they yeah, seem I'm cool finish it. it's fine it's that alcohol is... what could live in it that is disgusting don't come on your podcast where I am and judge me. Okay? I, am. <laughs> I was thinking of something to say. So as you know, we have entered into cancer season. Oh no. Which... Oh. <laughs> the bane of my existence since I found out my astrological sign when I was three. Look, I'm sorry. I thought that you meant the bad one. We're at a 
tough season where everyone's getting cancer. No, but God, that feels like it's on the horizon, right? I know. Like, I mean, what else could be worse for 2020? The cancer oh, flu the, sweeps the nation. We are in that period of the year from like June 22nd to July 21st, cool. which is ruled by the cancer sign, which is also my sun sign, which makes everybody very emotional, uh-huh. uh, which is why everybody's crying. Okay. You're welcome. Okay. Um, and for no other reason. And... Uh, <laughs> This is the only way. Any reason. And so I've been very emotional and reflective because I am a cancer. And it's also oh, I see. Season. So it gives you permission to feel your feelings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cancer season is when everybody <laughs> yeah, exactly. has permission to feel their feelings. 100%. 100%. Right. So I've been thinking and I've just been thinking about how we've now been doing this podcast for almost half a year or just about half a year. You know, Holy math, shit. Fine. Yeah. Yeah. And that's pretty cool. And I just wanted to say, I'm so appreciative of everybody that listens to this podcast each week. Right now in the year of our Lord 2020, there's so much fucking content, right? Because like, ev- like oh, finally all the networks and everybody realize like people just want to like have their phone blaring noise at them at all times while they do other things. So they're like, oh God, we got to do streaming. And then you have whatever the fuck Quibi is. And then you have like independent creators like this podcast or like a lot of like YouTubers or live streamers or you know twitch streamers and so there's there's it's noisy out there folks i want to let you know person to person from me to you the listener that every time i see a message on facebook or a message on twitter a reply to a tweet or somebody sharing the podcast or somebody saying like wow i didn't know this before and now i know it or somebody being like that was really stupid they should have done more research which happens (laughs) very rarely but it does happen sometimes yeah it means something it means something to me and i and i do see it and i am not a proponent of parasocial relationships and it will be a topic on the podcast soon Mm. um so i'm not trying to create a false narrative where you think i'm being like hi i'm your best friend and i love you because i wouldn't do that to you because i don't think it's healthy right we don't know each other But I will say that your messages of support mean a lot to me as a person and as a human being. And I really appreciate you liking this podcast and also making it a part of your day. I feel like my responsibility is not to be like your best friend, quote unquote. My responsibility is to earn a place in your day. Because there's a lot of things that you could listen to or do with your time. So my responsibility is to earn that place in your day. And I want you to know that when I do earn it, it means so much to me. I also really appreciate you guys kind of rolling with the punches yeah. and being like, oh, now the episode looks like this and now somebody else is over here. And oh, I've never heard this person's voice before, but now they're on the show. And I just think it's really cool that we've cultivated, I mean, it's a small community, but we've cultivated this community of people who are so open to like new experiences in the context of this show. And I think that's so fucking rad. And I'm so proud to be a part of this community who rolls like that oh absolutely totally seconded from me thank you guys so much for all your support we wouldn't still be here six months later doing it without you guys encouraging us and interacting with us and learning along with us and it means so much so- that's not my phone <laughs> so <funny. laughs> We never, we, we never promised to be professional we only or promised experts. to do our best was it your mom it was uh, Postmates. Oh, that's different. You know how sometimes we like to have little fact bangs? Fact bang. Thank you. Bang it. Bang it. I'm going to start kicking us off before we even get into the mini game with five fun, fast facts. 
Oh, that's, what gonna do. <laughs> that's it. That's it. <laughs> I'm going to clip that and use it every time. And they're all uplifting. So. Oh, good. Yeah. Here are my five fun fact facts. Number one, Jupiter's gravitational mass is so immense, modern science believes it's been protecting us from meteors for millions of years. Oh, what Jupiter. a friend. It just like picks them out of the space. Means like, not today. Number two, you'll like this. It is highly likely that your pet dreams of you in their sleep. <gasps> oh, she loved that, guys. She loved it. I need a full hour. Hold on. <laughs> <laughs> Let's circle back on this podcast. Number three. Van Gogh didn't start painting until his late 20s, and Samuel Jackson didn't get his first big role until his 40s, so no matter what you want to do, there's time. Number four, in dog slash wolf movies, where they use real life dog actors, the people who have to edit all that sometimes have to add CGI tails because the dogs can't stop wagging their tail. Oh, that's good, because they're doing such a good job and they love to do a job. Yeah. And then that's finally, good. number five, and this might be my favorite, the word for penguin in Mandarin translates to business goose. That does make sense though. <laughs> He's that a business goose. He is a business goose. I mean, look at the way they're dressed. Right, it's a goose in a fancy <laughs> little suit. Have you ever seen that clip of Benedict Cumberbatch uh, narrating like an, like a Planet Earth style nature documentary and he can't say the word penguin? Oh yeah, penguin. He seems to have like a nervous breakdown over time. Yes. About how to say the word penguin until by the end he's saying like pangwang like, <laughs> yeah he says like pangwang pangwang shall we mini game let's mini game i'm gonna go first i'm so excited to bring this topic to you <laughs> mine is very topical it's a topical topic my title is um araignée is it about like meditation not at all. Is it om? Oh, Not no. at all. Om as in H-O-M-M-E. Oh, okay. Om araignée. How is araignée spelled? Ah, nope. <laughs> A-R-I-A-G-N-E-E. I don't think I know that word. But uh, but I know om is man. In French. In French. En France. It's an animal. I'll give you that. Is it a werewolf? Om araignée. It's not a werewolf. How about this? Om araignée, the cat burglar. <gasps> that's fun. That word does not mean cat, just it so we all not. know. But that's fun. Okay, is it about that character that uh, Vincent Castle played in Ocean's Twelve, where he was a French cat burglar, but he was also it, called the fox. He was a fox burglar. It was not about that character. It is about a French cat burglar. That's good. I well, think that I'm much very you've guessed. I, I'm so proud of myself to have guessed what was 90% explained to me. Clearly not my best title so far. <laughs> uh, no, I feel it. You want to hear my title? Yes. The Human Release Valve. Is it the sphincter? <laughs> <laughs> Which one? We actually have several sphincters. <laughs> Let me push my glasses up real quick. Do we? Yeah, you have a sphincter and you're like, the sphincter between like your stomach and your esophagus, for example. Oh. Sphincter's like anywhere that like, like a valve. Okay. Is so? Is it the bumhole one? No. Is it the one that you just said? No. Can you say the title again? The human release valve. The human release valve. Human release. Oh, is it tear ducts? Eleanor, you're too good. <gasps> oh, oh my gosh. Oh my gosh, is it about why we cry? Yes. Ah! It is. That that's is, so 
excited. You like right on the nose. That's this is about so why we cry. Because cool. I have no idea. Yeah, it's cancer season, and also we're all crying for other reasons I every see. day. That is a top. That's a topical topic. I am goosebumps. Oh my god, she's goosebumps. <laughs> I'm business goosebumps right now. She is business goosebumps. Oh, that's beautiful. <laughs> that's a, that's a shirt. <laughs> Um, Ariagne. I'm gonna set the scene. Watch, I'm gonna set the scene with a little bit of like, mm, kind of background, kind of related information, but it is a different story, but it's a tiny it's one. Importante. It's importante. It's important, see. So, oh, hue, I should say. Hue. In 1911. About six years after I was born. Chelsea's just a tot. Um, <laughs> <laughs> a relatively uncelebrated painting by Leonardo da Vinci got stolt from the Louvre. Who cared? It wasn't a celebrated painting. Right. Took 28 hours before anyone even noticed it was gone. It was just a regular. It was missing for two years. And during that time, it kind of caused a bit of a media storm. Loads of people went looking for it. And it was the media attention that helped turn the Mona Lisa into the now most famous painting in the whole world. Pretty much. Wait, what? Before the Mona Lisa was stolen, no one cared about it at all. I feel like that kind of makes sense because have you ever seen the Mona Lisa in Yeah, person? it's small and she ugly. But say not to flex, but it's like yeah, like it's it's relatively small, which like normally like it's like you an know, A4 like size piece is like of- a grander. Yeah, like it's a really small piece. It's not particularly colorful. It's not mm-hmm. of a it's not of like a historical figure or a religious figure. Like it doesn't connect in in those ways. Right. Like it doesn't have. I'm not I'm not making like a subjective analysis of the painting i'm just saying it doesn't have any of the pieces that normally equate to a famous painting no it's not particularly beautiful it's not particularly large it's not grandiose it's not really that it's not impressive. it's not the virgin mary it's no, not a queen it's just or a, king. a random woman so it was literally because it got stolen and the media attention around it that made it so famous i want you to know i have a degree in art history and i did not know that well i found that out on wikipedia <laughs> <laughs> for free well, i learned it so well, please I tell me everything tell me more immediately we're actually not talking about that today just a little fun little oh what the fuck okay, we're talking about more about this we're talking about a different parisian art heist because i don't know if you know this chelsea you used to live in paris <laughs> i didn't oh my god yep. wow really mm-hmm. yeah you know sometimes i would just traipse down the champs Elysees with a baguette tucked under my arm just thinking just thinking, just thinking right across that channel is is my best friend. She's waiting Aww. for me. Aw. I uh, didn't actually think that, but wouldn't it be cute if I did? It would be, yeah, it would be really cute. <laughs> I really, I will say, I really did not have friends during that <laughs> semester. So it would have been nice if you had come to visit me. Oh, well, okay. When we get to like San Junipero, we can yeah. go to Paris. There we go. Perfect. Oh, that's sweet. It probably won't happen in our lifetimes otherwise, so. We're talking about a different Parisian art heist by the so-called Spider-Man. Ahanye! <gasps> Spider! Oh my god! That was driving me crazy! Ahanye! Spider. We're talking about... It's like arachnid. <laughs> right. Ahanye. Fuck! Okay, and you have one tattooed on your neck. <laughs> I do! Which, can I tell you, I don't regret any of my tattoos, but that one is the one that I come closest to because it is the one that strange men on the street feel the most entitled to touch. 
Oh, and it's no. on my neck where they're just like, oh. Okay, I'm so excited. Spider-Man. So, his name was Veheran Tomic. This is Great. a tale of pain, destiny, prowess, Gosh. obsession, thievery, and of course, romance, because we're in France. Duh. <gasps> and But it's also a bit of a window into the French psyche, and I'd love your input at any point. Oh, yeah, I'm ready. Okay. I have a lot of thoughts about the French psyche. Veheran Tomic was born in Paris in 1968 to uh, Bosnian immigrants, which is why he doesn't have a French name. Um, but he was immediately sent to live with his grandma in the Ottoman town of Mostar in Bosnia. So you have a pretty good idea of his parents' relationship to him as a child immediately. I see. By the age of six, he had developed what he calls a devious tendency and unhealthy intelligence. Oh, damn, me too. What a king. Um, <laughs> He would spend his days basically doing parkour on the bridges and the buildings of the town that he lived in. And when he was 10 years old, he broke into a library by climbing through a window that was about 10 feet above street level and stole two books, both several hundred years old. Not like Asterix or like something no, fun. Not like, not like the Gruffalo. <laughs> no. Something for him to read old books that were worth a lot of money and when he showed them off to his friends one of his friends brother was like no we have to go and put those back he turns 11 his parents decide to bring him back to paris even though he didn't speak any french and didn't know them at all and he <laughs> oh one of those is more important than the other <laughs> right and he hated them for that hated the fact that they pulled him out of Bosnia, well, yeah. where he was happy being a little book thief. He spent a great part of his teens climbing Paris, just as he had done in Mostar in Bosnia. Nice. Most of the time he and his friends spent in, I want to try and get this right, Pierre Lachaise? Yeah, that's the cemetery where, what's his name from the Doors is? Jim Morrison. Yes, yes, indeed. So there's like- That's where Jim Morrison is buried. It's the largest cemetery. It's a a gothic maze of tombstones that covers more than a hundred acres, apparently. Chopin, Proust, and Oscar Wilde are all buried there as well, as you pointed out, Jim Morrison. Tomek and his friends would- jump between the mausoleums and like do parkour all over the city. you're they're the original parkour boys? Yeah, I guess so. Uh, they were just <laughs> like, they were like the original jackass boys. They would encourage each other oh, to do I more see. and more dangerous things. That's fun. In his spare time, not unlike Chelsea Harfouche, he walked alone through the streets of Paris. <laughs> yes! And one day when he was 16, he noticed people lining up outside what looked like a greenhouse which was the Musée de Lingerie. Okay. You been there? Maybe. It was a I went to a lot of museums. <laughs> well, this is kind of what you do in Europe. Um, well, yeah, and it was free. Yeah. The structure was built in 1852 to shelter orange trees. Must be beautiful. Oh, okay. And now it L apostrophe O, right? Lingerie. Yeah. Yeah. L apostrophe O. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. And now houses Impressionist and Post-Impressionist art. Nice. That R was for you. This museum is best known because it has the water lilies by Monet. That's what most oh, people nice. go there for. But he was enraptured by Renoir's glowing renderings of happy childhoods in Paris because he didn't have one, which I think is quite sad, quite sweet. Damn. He says, Renoir has a way of seeing life from a magical realm. And it was an incredible feeling to be within a hand's reach of it. Hmm. The beginnings of an idea. I see. He decided then and there that the only worthwhile career in life was to be a painter. And that's what he went home to his parents to tell them. 
Did they love it? They did not love it. Yeah, they had other, <laughs> I- they had other ideas about that. So Great. he ran away and he and his friends found an abandoned warehouse near that cemetery and they squatted there and they supported themselves by stealing pieces of glassware from a local factory and selling them at flea markets. That's fun. They also began climbing the high walls of the cemetery, which allowed them to break into adjoining apartment buildings. Okay. Very soon, Tomek began robbing apartments in more affluent neighborhoods. His climbing skills continued to improve. By the age of 16, he could scale the facade of a multi-story building easily. He could just climb it. So he's like those two cats that have my favorite song in Cats. Mungo Jerry and Rumble Teaser. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. He's just like those. Perfect. Okay, I'm back on board. Good. Tomek describes his burglaries in like mystical terms. Of course he does. He would say, I have to be in harmony with certain places where I feel good. And then at that moment, I see like images from a movie, the places where I've walked in the past week and some places attract me. Something is waiting for me. I knew someday I would do something great. Sure. Yeah, I think, I think all of us feel that way at some point or another. His strategy was to go to these apartments up to 15 times before he took anything, just to assess and check what was the most valuable stuff. So yeah, what is it, well, what is it that Matt calls it in, it's always said, ocular pat down. An it's ocular, an funny. ocular pat down, yes. Yeah, so ocular pat down. Tomic went all over Paris doing ocular pat downs. <laughs> he adopted this strategy when he robbed the apartment of a designer, Philippe Stark. Okay, I need you to explain this to me a little bit. So Stark reports, I never Uh knew anything about my burglar, but I always had respect for his style and admiration for his temerity and a sort of intimate affection for him after I discovered that he'd been practically living with us in the apartment for a few days. Yeah, bonjour, bonjour. Spending his time soaring (laughs) into my poor small safety box without even disturbing us. It was very much a gentleman burglar situation, like Arsène Lupin who is a debonair thief invented by a French novelist in 1905. What? It's a very romantic description of a man who was like hiding in your house. (laughs) Yeah. Well, because like sometimes things are just cool. And that's... And that is like the superseding value above all else, including uh, privacy and well-being. (laughs) But sometimes, sometimes things are cool. Yeah. His obsession was fine art. In the fall of 2000... An episode that made the French papers. He used a crossbow with ropes and carabiners to sneak into an apartment while its occupants were asleep and he stole two Renoirs and various other works, a haul worth more than a million euros. While they were asleep in the apartment, just stole their art. Fast forward, May 2010. Ten years ago. Okay. Tomek was walking near the Seine and he came upon a large art deco building. Through the window, he noticed a cubist painting hanging on the wall. He later learned the building was the Musée d'Art Moderne. Nice. Known as the MAM. There are cameras on the roof, and he walked up to one of the building's other windows, which was blocked from the security cameras by a parapet. Studying the window's metal frame, he became convinced it was the same type that years earlier he had disassembled. He could easily break into this place. Of this discovery, he says, This made me realize that luck and my past experience were at a rendezvous. I asked myself if I was not in another dimension at the time. (laughs) Sure. Okay, buddy. I'm going to ask myself that all the time. (laughs) Am I in another dimension right now? A few days later, he comes back and checks out the inside of the man. He noticed that although the motion detectors were meant to flicker from green to red whenever anyone walked by, loads of them were just stuck on green, which delighted him. Yeah. (laughs) A little bit of information to sort of as background. Despite what the movies tell you, it's very hard to find a buyer for stolen masterpieces. 
Um, I could believe that. <laughs> right. But I mean, even in within like the criminal world, you know, because there's this idea that if you're connected to the right people within the criminal world, then you can just go like steal a Picasso and use it as collateral in a drug trade and then everyone's happy. Right. There's like an eccentric billionaire who wants it for his private collection. Right. And exactly. will give you like a hundred million dollars for it, but we'll never let anybody know he has a Renoir or whatever. Exactly. That's not exactly. real. Uh, not real at all. The typical art thief has no idea who will buy his loot. And that's why people don't really go for stealing art that much because it's so hard to sell and it gets instantly devalued because of that. The time Tomic began thinking about robbing the mam, he had established a steady business relationship with this sponsor, Jean-Michel Corvez, a white-haired man in his 50s who owned several businesses in France, including a small gallery in the Bastille neighborhood. Knowing that Tomic frequently broke into rich people's apartments, Corvez gave him a list of artists favored by his clients, among them Klimt, Legere, Modigliani, Monet, Pissarro, and Warhol. Like, the the big names. The big boys. Yeah, the big boys. Yeah. He also often chastised Tomek for eating badly and made him work out to stay in shape and improve his climbing. <laughs> this like, does sound like Do a not movie. get fat. It's heist time. May 14th, 2010. In the early hours of the morning, Tomek walked up to a window that faced an esplanade across from a skate park. At around 3 a.m., he saw a guard briefly patrol the galleries and then walk away. He was carrying a piece of dark cloth and he hung it like a curtain on the outside of the window to give himself cover so he could work on it. It took him six nights. First, he dabbed the window frame with a paint-stripping acid, exposing the head of each screw. Then, after applying another solution to eliminate the rust, he removed the screws and filled the holes with brown modeling clay that matched the color of the window frame, which was a painstaking process. It did, he didn't rush it. He did this over six evenings. Okay. May 20th. He returns to the site just before dawn in a hooded sweatshirt with literally with two suction cups and silently pulled out the window. Using bolt cutters, he broke a lock that held a grate in place on the other side of the window and entered the museum, avoiding a few of the working motion detectors. Just see this like little creeping man like then he left and retreated to the banks of the Seine where he waited for 15 minutes to ensure that he hadn't set off any kind of silent alarm. Coast is clear. He goes back inside, spots the painting that he's looking for, a legere painting, takes it off the wall, and maneuvered it out of its frame. He now had an object that Corvez prized that he knew would be able to sell. But something else caught his eye. Matisse's Pastoral. Painted in 1905, it depicts three pale nudes resting while a fourth figure, rendered in bronze, plays flute. He says, mm -hmm. I saw a deep, vivid landscape, and the little devil playing his flute out of nowhere as if by magic, as if he were the guardian of his environment. He took that too. Then he noticed right. Modigliani's woman with a fan. And he took that too. And he said, the woman in the picture was worthy of a living being, ready to dance a tango. Could have also almost been reality. So we took that. So we went ahead and took that. <laughs> Pigeon with peas by Picasso, took that. Olive tree near Lestac by Braque, he took that. Tight. He almost stole a sixth one, Modigliani's woman with blue eyes. But he says, when I went to get it off the wall, it told me, if you take me, you will regret it for the rest of your life. We better listen to that. I will never forget what this woman with blue eyes did to me, he says. When I touched it to take it out of its frame, the feeling started instantly, a fear that came over me like an iceberg, a freezing fear that made me run away. It took two trips for Tomic to carry the canvases out of the museum. He parked his Renault a few minutes away. That's a car. <laughs> along along yeah. the Avenue de New York. <laughs> uh -huh. he, he sat in the driver's seat for five minutes Knowing that it was dumb to linger, but yes. he was still debating in his head about that woman with blue eyes. Aww. So he gets out of the car, he heads back. But 
then reality sets in. No bad idea. The streets of Paris are deserted, and he's quite possibly the only person for blocks of a re- yeah. uh, within blocks of a recently burglarized yeah. museum. So he gets back in his car. He says, "When I drove, the blue-eyed lady was in my head." He met with Corvez later that morning on the fourth level of an underground parking garage in Bastille. When Corvez arrived at the garage in a rented Porsche, he realized that Tomic had not one but five stolen paintings, and he was. <laughs> unnerved <laughs> Tomix recalls so calmly he was afraid of me <laughs> naturally he was afraid he was afraid nevertheless Corvez accepted the Legere as agreed and he also took the Modigliani on consignment <laughs> so I mean like if he could find a buyer otherwise right. it's your fucking problem right and <laughs> Tomic managed to convince him to store the others as well on his behalf damn by the end of the day, newspapers all around the world were reporting this heist, obviously. The stolen works were estimated to be worth more than $70 million, making it the biggest theft of its kind since 1990. Which is when, apparently, two thieves disguised as police officers stole 13 artworks from the Stuart Gardner Museum in Boston, collectively valued at roughly half a billion dollars. Oh. All of which have yet to be recovered, by the way. Well, yeah, because nobody can sell them. <laughs> Gathering what? Gathering dust. You can't prove that's not what I said. That's true. <laughs> there's, there's, there's no <laughs> there's evidence. No audio record of it, so it's fine. Bertrand Delanoy, the mayor of Paris at the time, released a statement saying that he was saddened and shocked by this theft, which is an intolerable attack on Paris's universal cultural heritage. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you come in here and you take our art. How dare you? But he left virtually no <laughs> clues. He escaped pretty much scot-free. He hid out at a friend's slash lover's apartment for a while, waited out the media storm, six nice. months went by, nothing. And then they were conducting a separate investigation based on an anonymous tip about a thief and the informant provided Tomic's name. Meanwhile, it's a whoopsie-doo. A skateboarder across from the window <laughs> had uh-huh. given the police a very rough sort of visual on who they thought, you know, just kind of like build height, hair color. A man I saw. <laughs> I saw a man when I was skating in, at, in 3 a.m. <laughs> in the cemetery. <laughs> the police compared the photo of Tomic with the description given by the skateboarder, thought they had a match. Nothing happens. December 7th, they follow Tomic to the center Georges Pompidou and observe him studying the emergency exits. And then a day later, they surveilled him as he bought two suction cups and a pair of construction gloves. <laughs> and they're this like, guys, feel pretty suspicious, this dude. This guy is like so smart and so dumb. <laughs> On December 10th, detectives phoned him and the call was sent to voicemail. This is, this is amazing. His greeting was like incredibly brazen. This was his like, I'm sorry, I'm not on the phone right now. But please leave a message. He goes... If you want to buy paintings or works of art or exceptional jewellery, do not hesitate to contact me. Among the many paintings, there are five that are extremely expensive. <laughs> oh my god, what a flex! This is such an idiot! <laughs> that is so good! If you want to buy paintings or works of art or exceptional jewellery, do not hesitate to contact me. Among my many paintings, there are five that are extremely expensive. <laughs> And, like, anyone can guess what they are. Right. <laughs> oh, my so, God. This was clearly the dude. And there was absolute outrage that no arrests had been made. He clearly did it. But the French police feared sending the paintings deeper underground if they didn't pull it off right. That's fair. 
Because of a case in 2001, the police arrested Stefan Britweiser, a French thief who stole 239 works of art from more than 100 museums and galleries, and his mum shredded them and ground them up in a garbage disposal when he was arrested. Yeah, you don't want that to happen. You don't want that. Not with Paris's universal cultural works. <laughs> no, universal cultural icon. Exactly. <laughs> 2011 rolls around. No arrests. Atomic gets a little cocky now. Another evening, he was walking down the Avenue Montaigne. He noticed a stylish duplex in which all the lights remained on all night, and he suspected that its occupants were likely away. So using a fire escape, he climbed to the top of the building, three addresses down, crossed from roof to roof, and then with a rope, lowered himself into the illuminated apartment. Once inside, he closed the window to eliminate traffic noise. Nobody was home. Got a collection of watches, several valuable works of art, including a Pissarro. He said it was very beautiful, but he didn't really feel a connection with it. So he's like, nah, I'm good. Yeah, I'm not going to do that. I don't want that one. He was more tantalized by a crocodile briefcase with a false bottom. Yes. He goes back to the apartment 15 times. And the police are watching the entire time. (laughs) (laughs) Every time, every time he breaks into this place, they're just like, God, What? The last time he returned, he grabbed a bunch of stuff and they arrest him on the spot. They raid his apartment where they found a lots of, not only like incriminating equipment, a climbing harness and a grappling hook. <laughs> and he just confesses straight away. <laughs> oh yeah, like, that was me. Oh me? Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, oh, yeah, I'm actually really good at it. The so. ma'am? Yeah, I took I took all those. Tomic and Corvez were tried together with this guy, Byrne, who had agreed to buy the Mogliani painting and like knew about the whole thing. So the trial began in 2017 on Jan- January 30th in the High Court of Paris. The journalists start actually referring to him as Spider-Man. And this is my favorite part of this story. There's been some good parts, but this is my favorite part. And this ties into oh like the French psyche like we were talking about. I don't know how you're going to compete with that voicemail, but I'm I excited. Know, I know, it's very... <laughs> Five of them are very expensive. Uh, <laughs> despite the fact that he had stolen art from all humanity, as the prosecutor put it, bit much, the public fell in love with him. French people are very fond of thieves stories when there is no blood. Stéphane Durant-Selfland, who covered the story for Le Figaro, said, For us, Tomic is the perfect thief because he acted without weapons, did not strike anyone, and robbed not an individual in this case, but a poorly supervised museum. He fooled the guards without any difficulty and chose the works he took with taste. And he was polite to the judge. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know. That all checks out to me. (laughs) So everyone was like, this guy rules. (laughs) In court, he had no remorse. He literally said, these paintings are mine now. <laughs> this guy rules. I'm yeah. sorry. They're my property. These are my works. They're mine. Olivia Bouchara, who covered the trial for the French edition of Vanity Fair, said, by saying this, Tomic was telling us this heist was my masterpiece. I can put my name on this. That's true. Is this guy Banksy? No. <laughs> <laughs> no. I mean, no. I feel confident saying no. No. He, no. <laughs> um, he boasted about how easy it was. And he compared himself to the fictional robber we talked about earlier, Arsène Lupin. Tight. Frank Johannes of Le Mans said that Tomic's story had all the elements of a Lupin story. A spectacular robbery, perfectly organized without violence by a sort of artist himself. Among the French, Johannes said, there remains a certain sympathy for those who disrupt the established order. He cited as evidence the rebellions of 1789, 1792, 1830, 1848, 1871, 1936, and 1968. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think, you know, you said you want to talk about, like, French psychology. I think that is something that 
you know, you and I talk a lot about like kind of cultural memory mm-hmm. as sort of like a topic that we're both interested in. Because like one great example is like America's cultural memory of World War II was so different because we didn't fight here. Right. Mm-hmm. Whereas like in the UK, you know, you guys had like the Blitz and and you had people, you know, traveling like not very far away to fight. And so it's a much different and more immediate cultural memory. So I think something that like really seems to impress upon like French cultural memory is I think Americans love to be like, like the idea of like being a rebel or being an underdog is really prevalent in American culture because they're like, oh yeah, we rebelled against the British. Ha 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 ha. But that was like almost 300 years ago. Right. Uh, the French are on, I believe, their fifth republic. Because yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, since they, they first overthrew their monarchy, then that's what they call it. They call it like the cinquième république, meaning the fifth republic, because they fully acknowledge that like, yeah, uh, so we we cut the king's head off, and then we started a republic, and it didn't it didn't work out so great. So then you know we had Napoleon, blah, 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 blah. and then we had another one, and then we were like, ah, you suck. And then we had a third one, like they like they don't even give a fuck. They're just like right. every time they're like, oh, you suck. Uh, start it over, bullshit. Yeah. Like tear it down. This sucks. New republic. Let's do it again. Let's go ahead and let's go ahead and give us another college try. So this guy comes in who's like basically, <laughs> well, you should have guarded them better, and the public are like, he's right. <laughs> Uh-huh. It's like, this was my masterpiece, I mean, and how is it different? And they're like, whoa. He is bro. right. <laughs> he is right. He was sentenced to eight years, and Byrne, this guy who bought one of the paintings, claims that the $70 million worth of art, he claimed that he took them all from the safe, brought them to his workshop, and kicked them all in, tore them all up, put them in the trash. He says, I, put the- I threw them into the trash. I made the worst mistake of my existence. But not everyone believes him. Not even his co-conspirators believe him. Some authorities think the paintings may have been smuggled out of the country. And both Tomic and Corvez have said it's unlikely Byrne would have acted in such a dramatic and unintelligent fashion. Yeah, I doubt it. So there remains a glimmer of hope that one day, probably in the distant future, one or more of these five pieces of art, of cultural universal art, might rise from the trash heap. But who's to say? And that is the story of the Homme Ariagne. Eleanor... I will give you, uh, you you get a point for that. A point. (laughs) Oh my God. I was losing my mind. That gets a point. And he was like, yeah, you get a point. That's great. You did a good job. How dare you? I was like, this isn't like tennis. You don't get one point for like successfully doing it. I'm going to give you, uh, eight points because it's expansive. And I'm going to give you another two points because like, is he single? (laughs) <laughs> uh no actually he does have a girlfriend oh i'm imagining like an incredible throuple <laughs> me connor and the french art thief <laughs> i'm gonna take off a point because i forgot the word for uh spider and, and so is... that's a point taken from me that's that's gonna be a point taken away from you makes sense that was embarrassing okay so. <laughs> you should have thought about that thank you so much you're welcome that rules i'm proud of him Are you ready to learn about tears? Yes. Yes. <laughs> so I was thinking about it because I was like, man, like, what, you know, the stuff that we've been covering on the podcast recently, it's been very fun, but it's also been, like, it's been a lot of news. It's been a yeah. lot of like, which is really important. And I'm glad that we get to talk about those things. But I was like, 
what could I do to kind of mix things up? We are defined by more than our tragedy and sadness, and therefore we should allow ourselves space to have fun. Absolutely. And to that end, I was like, what are some of my more, like, more of my, like, sober high thoughts? Yeah. Similar to, like, when I was like, how does baking work? Uh, I was like, okay. And I was like, I was like, why do we cry? Because, like, what is the function? Like, I don't know about you. You know how, like, a woman's life is pain? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. How the biblical curse rings true. Yeah. Yeah. A joke that I have with my boyfriend is, like, it's a Chelsea's place to suffer. Like, it's just, like, (laughs) it's just the way that it works. But, no, I mean, like, yeah, like, uh, having a body is painful. Being a person is painful. And a long time ago, I learned when it comes to physical pain, that something that I do as an exercise is I do a lot of, you might not know what's about me, Ellie, do a lot of like visualizations when I'm in physical pain, Mm -hmm. where I visualize the part of my body that is causing physical pain. And I think very deeply about why I'm experiencing that pain in my brain. So for like example, if I stub my toe and it hurts a lot, I imagine my toe and I imagine the bone in my toe and I imagine it getting like violently shifted backwards. And then I tell my brain, I know my toe got shifted. It's not broken. We're fine. It's okay. okay. Like you don't need to continue to send me the signal. I am aware. (laughs) We're done. Yeah. Like I'm like, I know that you brain are sending me a signal to say like warning, there's damage to the body, but I am aware of this damage and I have ruled that it's fine. Does that that work? We'll be fine. Yeah, it does. Hmm. Um, and I do that, you know, like with like uh, like menstrual cramps and like, I know, guys, I'm so sorry. Ew, um, gross. <laughs> or like when I got my IUD, because that was horrific. Oh, so painful. <laughs> but you know where like that system has its limitation is emotional pain. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> then I'm like, hey, like my chest hurts and like there's really no reason. <laughs> Can we just go ahead and stop this? Yeah, we'll just don't. Maybe we don't. Just, like, let this go? Yeah. And so this is why it's something I think about a lot. So I'm like, what is the point? Like, what is the point of having like excruciatingly physical, for example, like chest pain when you're sad. Mm -hmm. And then the one that's like a little bit more, I guess, universal is like, what is the, what is the point of tears? Right. Right. What, why do we cry? Everything else that we do kind of has like this, like physiological or like survival based need. I don't see how, For example, like when we're in a state of crisis, blurring our vision would be like (laughs) a great visual or like something that's really loud. Like I don't know about you, but when I like sob, it's I have a hard time catching my breath. Yeah. And it's both difficult to breathe and incredibly loud. So I'm like, this doesn't seem like a great survival tactic. Right. Right. And also like, oh, I'm in a terrible state. Wet face. Yeah, I'm just gonna go ahead and have a real wet face, and I'm gonna like, and I'm gonna leech out all my salt, which is important as well. Right, I'm gonna make you feel so hungover. Yeah, so I was like, okay, we gotta do this. So I started doing some research, and I found out a lot of really interesting stuff. Ooh. First and foremost, I found that when most researchers and physicians try to find the source of crying, they go to infancy and babies, Mm. which makes sense. Because like, if you think about it, babies are like the foundation for people. Babies can't do nothing. And they can't do shit. But one of the things that they do do is that they crying is the very first thing that they do on this planet, right? Mm. Like babies come out crying, right? They they Apart from Jesus, but yes. Okay. They ride that dark water slide of life and then they come out. You can talk about cancer season. I can talk about baby Jesus. You can talk about baby Jesus. Oh, because you're saying he didn't cry? He didn't cry. I never heard that, but I believe it. Mm -hmm. I'm sure he was very serene. He was like, sir. He was like, 
with like the little hand. Yeah, with his little tiny baby hand and finger like, hello. Yeah, one finger up. Oh, it's perfect. Yeah. So babies cry when they first come out of the womb. And the reason that they cry, scientists believe, is to clear their airwaves, right? Because they have all goo. that like amniotic fluid. That's how they breathe when they're yeah. in the womb. I'm checking, checking up the goo. Yeah, they're like, they're literally like in some goo and that's what they're breathing. And they have to clear it all out of their like nasal passages and their airways in order to start breathing oxygen in the world. I know, I'm sorry, babies. So that's why they cry is because it's like this like forceful, like, (laughs) right? Uh And they push it out. Well, we don't need to do that. We already know how to breathe out. I don't know about you, but I am excellent at breathing oxygen. Oh, I'm pretty good at it. Yeah. So then the next thing they started thinking was that tears are a form of nonverbal communication, right? Because babies, babies cry when they want something or a need is not being met or they're in physical pain because they don't have language yet. So it's just like, it's a general alarm bell that can mean a whole host of things. It's one of the first nonverbal, Mm -hmm. nonverbal using is just to be like not language, right? Right. Uh, Communication, things that you have, but we learn how to communicate. So why would we keep this sort of vestigial communication tool? So one of the prevailing theories that kind of falls under this nonverbal idea is looking at cats. Okay. Which you know I love. When I saw that pop up, I was like, yeah. Yes. (laughs) Let's just like break it down real quick, real quick. There's two types of cats in the world. There's purring cats and roaring cats. Cats who roar can't purr and vice versa. I don't know if you knew that. I didn't. Oh, yeah. Cats, like, so, like, lions can't purr, and Mamba can't roar. Yet. (laughs) Yet, but he's working on it. So there's two types of cats in the world, purring cats and roaring cats. Domestic house cats, which are descended from purring cats, all of those cats, except for domestic house cats, don't meow, right? They don't meow into adulthood. Because meowing is only a juvenile cat communication tool. Only kittens meow in the wild to tell their mothers or whoever caretakers that they need milk or they need saving or whatever domestic house cats when they evolved to live alongside humans they were the first ones to evolve to keep meows into adulthood because they found that if we think of them as kittens or we think of them as sweet little babies we'll do more stuff for them and give them making a little meow meow noise so only adult domestic cats who are purring cats meow into adulthood all other cats lose it when they when they phase into adulthood so then some people thought oh human tears are like that we have learned human tears are the cats meow yeah human human tears are the cats meow they let other we're highly social creatures we have to be in social units to survive sorry alpha males uh (laughs) we have to be in social units to survive Uh so crying lets other human beings know that we are in trauma we are in crisis we need help but that's not everything so that was the prevailing theory for a while right oh this is just purely like a holdover from childhood and infancy but and also that was the supporting theory as to why like oh like men don't cry right because like men are self-sufficient they don't Uh need this like they don't need this emotional crying is weakness baby weakness stupid their needs are being met quote unquote they can meet their own needs whereas like i don't think i've met a single man whose needs have been met like (laughs) that's true (laughs) but then you know a little thing called science started happening (laughs) ever heard of it uh and they started really looking at the makeup of tears (laughs) just we promised we wouldn't get political on this podcast (laughs) 
sob for America. Carry on. <laughs> so biochemists started looking at at tears like more in a more sophisticated way. Basically, like looking at the makeup, the biological, biochemical. Like putting a tear under a microscope. You gotta put a tear under a microscope. <laughs> There's something Sometimes so poetic about serious. that. <laughs> I know it's beautiful. So human beings produce three kinds of tears: okay. reflex tears continuous tears and emotional tears reflex tears are like when you get something in your eye you can tell it's not the same as like an emotional cry right it's just like your eyes are like full of water Mm -hmm. or like if you get like you like you know you go through like a dust cloud or something Mm -hmm. those are reflex tears you're it's a reflexive act by your body to rid your eye of a of an irritant okay the second is continuous tears which are the tears that keep your eyes lubricated at all times right Mm -hmm. so they don't get damaged Uh, And then the third one is emotional tears, which is what we've been talking about. So biochemists thought that when they looked at these tears, they were all going to be the same, right? Because it's the same fluid that's coming out of your eye. Uh Uh-huh. But it's not. Reflex tears and continuous tears are 98% water. They're literally just a lubricant that your body creates to keep your eyes safe. Emotional tears contain stress hormones. Oh, I don't know why that's my reaction. Like, oh, (laughs) yes. So when you cry like a human release valve, you are literally shedding stress hormone out of your body because you have a buildup of stress hormone, which is why. And this has made me feel so much better because you and I talk about this. I am a person that cries when I'm frustrated, which is different than being sad or hurt. You saw that tweet that was like, I don't know how lawyers do their arguments without crying. (laughs) I really don't. Like, I I don't. Because when I get angry or really frustrated, when I feel like this sense of helplessness, which is stressful, right? Mm -hmm. Because I want to be, my fight or flight is stimulated. I want to be able to fix the problem. And for whatever reason, I can't. And I'm frustrated. Yeah. I cry. Mm -hmm. And it's because I have, there's a biological reason behind it. I have a buildup of stress hormone. And my body, for whatever reason, has figured out that the best way to get rid of that stress release, stress hormone quickly is to cry it out. Amazing. So that's why if you haven't cried in a really long time and something like, I don't know if this happens to you, this happens to me. Sometimes if I haven't cried in a while, I just get this feeling upon me that's just like, I just need to have a cry. And you (laughs) have a little cry and then you're like, oh, that feels better. It feels like having a little emotional massage. For me, yeah. I don't know if that's the same. No, I, I mean, I think it makes sense. I, I mean, not all human bodies are the same. So mm-hmm. like, I don't want anybody to listen to this and think like, because they don't cry in certain situations, oh, there's, no. it's, they're not normal. No. But it's more like over time through a lot of different reasons, through like uh, nature and nurture, your body comes up with different ways to deal with different shit, right? right. So if for whatever reason, you and I, probably because we were raised by the kind of people who also cried a lot. So we saw it as like very normalized. Uh, that we figured out that that was um, a safe and appropriate and very effective way to mm-hmm. release the stress hormone. Other people, they don't like to cry, so they want to go sweat it out, you know, by exercising or something like that. Right. Um, all those things are normal. But the, the point of this is to say that emotional tears do release your stress hormone. Aww. Another really interesting freaky thing from a Healthline article that was just called Benefits of Crying. And I was like, yes, yes, <laughs> thank you, <laughs> is that it cools your brain down. What? This was, this was super freaky to me. As you know, when you saw what we were just talking about, <gasps> uh-huh. 
you're pulling in huge amounts of cold air and it it literally lowers the temperature of your brain and a cool brain releases a pleasure hormone yeah it does (laughs) (laughs) which is why i bought that standing fan for generella for our like freaky uh gaming den in my house for a cool brain so we can be (laughs) cool brains this is really important i think because i think we're all having a lot of cries and i think there's like a lot of weird social stigma around crying but the next time that you want to settle down for a good cry, Oof. just know that one, it is your animal brain letting other animals know that uh, you need a goddamn minute. <laughs> that's totally fine. And two, you are literally shunting out the stress. Whoa. Uh, pushing it out of your body so that you have more room for like the happy hormones like oxytocin. That's so cool. Yeah. And then the last thing that I thought I would share, because I really like this, also in that uh, benefits of crying. <laughs> Mm-hmm. was a, a section at the bottom called How Much Should You Cry? Uh, researchers at Tilburg University did a, a big study about how much people cry over around the world. Uh-huh. They found that on average, American women cry, do you want to guess, how many times a month? How many times a month? Yeah, how many times a month do you think on average American women cry? I want to say... Uh, women who live in America. T- ten. Well, I will say this article I, is from 2017, so this is a pre-COVID America. Okay. That they're talking about. They said 3.5 times each month is average. Okay. Average American man cries about 1.9 times. I mean, obviously, this is also self-reported, so these right. numbers could be lower or higher. The average in America is on the higher end of the spectrum for the world. <laughs> uh, women in China, for example, only cry about one and a half times each month. Just okay. get a good half a cry in there. Yeah. Just a little, <laughs> I'm good. And then all the way on the other end of the spectrum would be men in Bulgaria. They report that they cry 0.3 times a month. They have a third of a cry every month or one cry every three months. Sounds more likely. If you're lucky. <laughs> but I think huh. they should. They should cry. I think we should. I think we should all normalize crying. 2020, normalize crying. It fucking sucks out there. Okay, so we have business goose and normalize crying. <laughs> business goose. <laughs> what about happy tears? Can I tell you, that's not a thing that I expre- I experience very often. No, me neither. So here's my, here's my thought, and this is controversial because I'm not a doctor. <laughs> I, my best guess is that you probably still release stress hormone when you are so overcome with emotion, even if it's a positive emotion, that you cry. It probably means... Because, so, you know, adrenaline is just another word for epinephrine, right? Like, it's it's the uh, central nervous system hormone that basically shunts all the blood to your uh, to your core and makes you, like, ready to be like, rah, 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 rah. and you, like, get all this, like, blood. You got to get all that blood. God, I'm <laughs> such a doctor. And- <laughs> you got to get that blood and you got to get that oxygen. And so you experience that, that adrenaline rush, that epinephrine rush, even when you're happy. So therefore you would still probably need to shut some of that out. Right. So you're still having the same chemical reaction because the chemical reactions in your body are objective. They're not subjective. They don't care that it's because you like saw a really good puppy. <laughs> That's a really or good in my puppy. Case, or in my case that you thought about Mamba eating pizza. Oh yeah. Uh, <laughs> that is a true story, guys. Chelsea once cried because she realized that Mama could never have pizza. Because he can't chew, he can only tear. <laughs> anyway, that's that's my that's my best gars. That's my best. Need to restore gars. emotional equilibrium. Um, Chels, 
loved yeah. it loved i'm now it. gonna go and research so much about why we cry love it cry 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 um well i just i just told you what well, i <laughs> you always say that you look up my stuff too that's true uh i'm gonna give you i'm gonna start off with a base of seven points oh my gosh i'm gonna plus three points for the information about the cat's meow an embarrassing cheese ball because she deserves that it. is great that is super embarrassing for her yeah <laughs> more than the tiktok i made about it oh even more oh no that's the worst one um <laughs> I'm going to give you another three points, one for each kind of tear. But I'm going to take away three points because of the freaky brain coolant. That was upsetting to me. Oh, you didn't want to think about a cold brain? Didn't want to think about a cold brain, but then I'm going to give you... Cold brain is a happy brain. (laughs) Is a happy brain. (laughs) Smooth brain, cold brain. But then I'm going to give you two points back for each time you said said shunt. Oh, I do. I love that word. I love to think about my blood shunting all over the place. <laughs> Just shunting. Oh, my um, God. So them's, them, them's be the points. That was a fun episode. Two, two fun stories. Oh, my God. That was fun. That was fun. Y'all? Right? Guys, do you think it was fun? Tell us if it was fun. Help us. Tell us it was fun. <laughs> Please tell us it was fun. Thank you for joining us on this episode of What? We hope that we made you smile in, in, in a tough time. And now you know, if you're having a, a weep at the news, you know why. Shunt those hormones right out of you. Chelsea. You gotta shunt. You got to. Chelsea, where can people... You've f- gotta shunt. Chelsea. Yeah. <laughs> where can people find you? Oh, God. Where can't they find me? You know what I mean? She's everywhere. Uh, I am I am infinite. <laughs> uh, you can find me uh, skating at the local skate park, trying That's to teach true. myself how to skate. Ellie and I are starting a skate gang so that we can circle uh, Max's car. Yep. And you can find on the internet digitally, you can find me at Chelsea Harfouche wherever internets are sold. And you can find me at Ellie Main on Instagram or Ellie Mainy on Twitter. And you can find this podcast at WhatPod on Twitter and Instagram on Patreon and at our website, thosetwogirls.club, where you can get a link to our merch. You can contact us if you want us to say something fun on the podcast. That's where you can find our contact form. And you should. And we'll see you next week. And in the meantime, how about you, well, I don't know, go learn something. Bye.